Beautiful clip. Everybody, welcome to Curiouser and Curiouser. It's our second show, and I'm Sadhu Srinivasan. I am so excited to be here um, because I am obsessed with this topic. Studio 54. Yesterday happened to be the 45th anniversary of this legendary and iconic nightclub in New York City. And when I think of Studio 54, I mean, I wasn't old enough to be there, although Drew Barrymore was hanging out and partying there when she was eight or nine. So I guess I can blame this on my parents as well, that I was just a little bit younger than her. They could have taken me. They didn't. So another thing to blame them about. But when I think about this era and I think about Studio 54, I think about joy, abandonment, creativity, rapture, revelry, excess, imagination, fashion, style, celebrity, nobody's, gay culture, black culture, just this amazing melange of things that was happening at the time. And it's an extraordinary thing because if you think about Studio 54, you think of it in an outsized way and yet it was only around for a little under three years. And yet it has this outsized impact on how we think of the 70s and disco culture and clubs, dancing, nightclubs in New York, um, even though it had this very, very short lifespan. It exploded onto the scene and it also burnt out very quickly. Um, so when I think of this time and I think of Studio 54, I think of it as this amazing thing, this oasis that happened in New York but it's also a story of friendship between the two owners who are about as different as they could be and were such great friends throughout it. They complimented each other. One was gay, one was straight, one was extremely outgoing. Some would say abrasive, very friendly. The other one was an introvert, very competitive, focused on the business side. And as we'll discover as we go through the show today, this was not only a story of friendship building this company, but they went down in flames together. It did not end well. And the third piece of this is the redemption piece, which is they came out okay on the other side. And so I just love the entire story. I can't wait to dig in. Um, and I want to just introduce Olivia Wynn, um, who is going to be chatting a little bit with me about Studio 54. So Olivia, I don't know if you want to introduce yourself or say hello. Yes. Hello. I am thrilled to be here. I got to say, I would have been sort of dancing in my room a little bit, listening to the music. It's definitely a little bit before my time, but it's, it's kind of fun listening to this because I know my parents love this music. <laughs> it is a great groove and everything. Um, and I, you know, it's part of my like cultural education I guess you know like gotta gotta know like the history of everything so I'm super excited to be in this room I gotta ask that are you just like your personal opinion and like listening to that first clip and what you know of me and this is a very self-centered question so forgive me do you think I would have gotten into studio 54 or would I have been turned away at the door you know what's really interesting and we're gonna get into that um, okay <laughs> there apparently was no formula to this 
Interesting. Um, so it's a crapshoot kind of. Meaning, meaning I think that celebrities got in because they were celebrities, although we're going to talk about some that were turned away at the door. Um, but there, it caused a lot of consternation because it wasn't the way that we think of club culture today in New York, where if you're dressed a certain way, you're going to get in. And if it's like, they'll let girls in, but not guys and that sort of thing. He was really, Steve Rubell, who was one half of the partnership that brought Studio 54 to life, actually played doorman um, and was out there basically picking people. He wanted a melange on the dance floor. He wanted a salad of people. So if you were interesting, if that night needed more gay, he would bring in more gay. If it needed more straight, he would bring in more straight. If it needed more crazy. And he had no problem turning people down. And if somebody, there are hilarious clips of him all over the internet, basically saying, yeah, I know you're a friend of my cousins, but that doesn't mean you're going to get in the door. Um, and part of this was also why people blame the downfall of the club because they pissed off so many people with their door policy. Um, they ended up, um, you know, and Steve, I think, till the end, took on a lot of that responsibility. But they also had doormen, proper doormen that knew who was needed to be in that night and not. So you might get in one night and you might not get in another night. And as I said, if you go on YouTube, you can find all of these clips of people that are perfectly dressed, that are beautiful, clearly have money, that can't get in. So nothing guaranteed that you got in other than maybe your Halston, Bianca, Liza, Andy, which, by the way, became a thing. Um, those four names are always said together in a breath because they were always there. Um, so the short answer is, I don't know. There are probably nights when you would have gotten in and there are probably nights that maybe you would stay behind the red velvet rope. But there's always a dream um, to get in. But I think in order to understand a little bit about Studio 54, we need to take a step back and understand in history what how this happened, right? So this was in New York um, of the 70s, which was the son of Sam, right? Who was going around and killing people. Elvis Presley dying. New York City was on the verge of bankruptcy. Uh, there were hostages being held, American hostages in Iran. Nixon had resigned. Um, and New York City was considered dirty and grimy and grungy. Um, the parks were not safe. Central Park, Bryant Park, uh, Washington Square Park. And it's really funny. You know, I'd mentioned that this was really all before my time. And I got to New York in the late 80s and early 90s. And there were still vestiges of that, right? You could not go into parks after a certain time without having somebody walk by you and trying to sell you pot. And I remember this really clearly. Um, I also remember graffiti trains. And so imagine this is like a decade later and there's still vestiges of this. Trains were super graffitied. Um, you wouldn't, I lived uptown at the time I was in school. And if you would go downtown, you thought twice about it after 11 PM. So this is the sort of New York that Studio 54 was kind of born into. At the same time, because there was sort of this flight from New York, I think that Johnny Carson had taken The Tonight Show and fled from New York City to Los Angeles. People were leaving. It, there was also low barriers to entry so that you could have folks like Robert Maplethorpe and Patti Smythe and, and artists show up, right? Artists, musicians, dancers. Um, out of this came Basquiat and Madonna and Keith Haring. The East Village was super rundown. You would find heroin needles everywhere. Soho was not the sort of luxury mall that it is today. Wall Street was not the way that you think of it today. I mean, these were places, meatpacking district, which is sort of a party district today. Um, these were not places that you would want to go after dark. But they did offer artists and creative people large spaces to be creative for cheap uh, if you could sort of brave, uh, you know, what was happening out on the street. And it was against that backdrop that these two guys, Ian Schrager and Steve Rubell, decided that they wanted to open up this nightclub. Um, they had already had a couple of different nightclubs. Um, and they decided that they wanted to actually bring the energy of the gay clubs to proper Manhattan, New York City. Um, and again, this was also a time that things, you know, there was still quite big divisions between sort of gay, straight, black, white. 
but they wanted to bring the energies they saw downtown. Zebra Bell happened to be gay. Ian Schrager was straight. They wanted to bring that amazing energy and they wanted this mix of folks in the clubs. So they opened up a club in a place where there are no clubs, right? On 54th Street um, in a theater that CBS had had um, and that was uh, basically available for rent and they opened up this club there. So they've got this space, they take, they end up leasing it. Um, they get a financial partner, it's $400,000. They end up opening it up within six weeks and up until uh, the last few hours, right before opening, they were putting together things like rushing up the set. So it was a mad rush to open it. Um, and so when it opened April 26, 1977, no one was more shocked than them that there was sort of this outsized kind of, uh, you know, interest in Studio 54. And they would often say during the height of Studio 54 that there were three times the amount of people trying to get in outside than there were in the club. And the whole idea, as you sort of brought up, and feel free to sort of unmute and jump in if you have a question or have a comment or anything. And, you know, I was thinking that we might, if we take callers, we will do that sort of at the end. Um, if there was somebody at Studio 54 or has something of import to add, uh, but I think we're probably going to have enough to actually talk about this for the entire hour. Um, and there's so much to go into. So there was, Steve Bell would be out in the front um, and handpicking folks for what he called a toss salad to come in. And every night it was different. And he would say he didn't want it to be too gay. He didn't want it to be too straight. Um, the only people that were sort of guaranteed entry were the celebrities. Um, and this ranged from, you name it, Diana Ross, Michael Jackson, Brooke Shields, Calvin Klein, um, Grace Jones, Halston, Liza Minnelli, Elizabeth Taylor, Dolly Parton, Rod Stewart, Elton John, Drew Barrymore. I mean, we can go on and on. Anybody that was anybody showed up at some point. Donald Trump. They were all at Studio 54. Um, and they decided to do things that had never been done before, which was they created theme nights. So they would have uh, a night that was a birthday party for this really famous pictures of Bianca Jagger on a white horse as Lady Godiva. Apparently she was on that horse for just a couple of seconds, but a picture was taken and that went around the world as sort of symbolic of the excess. Olivia, did you want to say something? Yeah, yeah I just had a quick question, like thinking about all this and, and you know, like how you were saying, first of all, thank you for the history lesson. I just like loved all of that. You know so much about it. This is crazy. Um, but I was just wondering, and I'm definitely about to show my age here, but it's like, you know, all, all these people like waiting to get in and all the celebrities know about it. And, and I wonder if you can sh shed some light on this. In an age where there was not social media, like blasting promotions about a new club, like what was what was their method of like marketing and getting the word out? Was it like working with these celebrities, publicists, you know, being sort of in the know and knowing the right people? Like how how did they sort of get off the ground in that way? That's a great question. And the answer to that is they had publicists. They had they hired oh. a couple of people um, that have become celebrities in their own right that kind of knew how to get to the folks that they wanted to invite. And then the second thing is you have to remember everybody was reading newspapers, right? So Cher mm -hmm. showed up, I think, to the first night and then she was and she was dancing in overalls and a straw hat. And that was on the cover of all of the newspapers the next day. And that made the club. After that, everybody was like, oh, my God, I got to be there. And part of the mystique also was kind of this red velvet rope, which is sort of ironic because the whole idea was outsiders become insiders, right? It was like gay mm. music and black music and women. You have to remember, this was after the pill. It was before AIDS. Feminism was kind of coming in, into its own. So it was all, all of these, you know, there was also, you know, we would be remiss not to mention because a lot of people talk about the drugs and the sex. Um, you know, the period in time that this was all going on, um, 
certainly you'll have people talk about it being very hedonistic. People in terms of fashion were coming in with pieces of their clothing off, taking off clothing on the dance floor, you know, shedding different items of things as they were getting down. There were upstairs, downstairs, there was a basement where some celebrities would hang out. And they talked about it being a pickup joint. So certainly that aspect of it was there. Um, and then in terms of the drugs, of course, there's a lot of sort of, um, talk about, you know, how cocaine was such a huge thing. And what I think is interesting about that is most of the documentation that you see, whether it's you're reading something or watching uh, a news clip or a documentary, was that people seem to not understand that cocaine was like an actual addictive drug that could be bad for you. They were like, yeah, it's recreational. You Mm. can do it. It's not a problem. You just stay up all night. They were like sort of doing it openly, which actually fits into what sort of the kind of culture of America, because we have a, we do that with everything, right? We're like, oh my God, running's so good for you. And then they're like, oh my God, you don't want to overdo it. Or pomegranate juice is fantastic. We don't really look to other sources outside of our own research, which is fallible. Mm -hmm. But for instance, like with food and health, there've been other cultures that know things about food for thousands of years, but we don't bother to, you know, consult them. We basically go, oh, turmeric, you know, well, actually it's pronounced turmeric and there's a reason why you don't dump it on everything. Um, there's a reason why yoga isn't done in cert- on certain days. There are actual reasons for this because they've been per- perfected in other places. But I think that the genius and also the downfall is Americans like jump into something 150%. They don't look at any other information and then they sort of realize, oh, maybe I shouldn't have done that. And maybe too much broccoli is a bad thing. So I think the whole kind of drug culture and cocaine being seen as recreational and not very um, something to worry about completely makes sense kind of when you think about that time. Totally. So you have all of this stuff happening, right? And, and this also kind of lent itself to the idea that this was an oasis. It was a sanctuary. It was a haven. You asked a question about celebrities, right? They felt that once you came into Studio 54, you were protected. Um, and not just celebrities. It was everybody. They were like, anything goes. You can do whatever. You can dance. And celebrities wouldn't be bothered, right? So you could dance with Catherine Deneuve. You could be on the dance floor with, you know, Liza Minnelli, and you can actually see clips of these guys in the crowd. Nobody's bothering, everybody's dancing. You wouldn't ask anybody to dance. You just might boogie with Diana Ross and, you know, and that would be it. So it was this sort of extraordinary little oasis where people felt safe. It was a sanctuary. People could be creative. Um, There were characters such as Roll Arena who always got in. Um, Apparently this was somebody that was like an accountant or like um, an investment banker by day. But by night, he was like kind of like a trans person on roller skates that would show up with a fairy, like a little wand. And he was always got in. There was a like 80-year-old woman. I think her name was Disco Dolly. She would always get in. And so- an icon. (laughs) Yeah, you were like in these amazing, you know, in this amazing like environment with all of these different people dancing with this phenomenal music. And I think that's what Steve Rubell out in the front was fiercely protecting Mm. Um, this melange that had to have the mix right. Um, And of course the music was great, but when they were putting this together, they, they did it in a very different way from discos of the time. They spent a lot of money on theater and sets and moving things. So you'd have three or four different set changes during the night. They had lighting that would come down and go back up. So they invested quite a bit of money to transform the club experience into like a theatrical fantasy, you know, amazing thing filled with imagination and just this joyous place, right? Acrobats and actors and animals and performers. And it was just a theater while you were dancing. So that sounds, I'm sort of, I'm, I'm hearing all of this and thinking, like listening to the context and the history of it. And then, you know, sort of thinking to today, like I live in New York City, like, you know, going out to various bars and clubs in New York and just like nothing, or maybe I'm just not going to the right places. Maybe I just don't, <laughs> maybe I just don't know the the cool spots. Um, but like, not, it, it doesn't feel like anything like this exists anymore. Like it, like that sort of place of like freedom and the theatricality, like 
and again, maybe I'm not going to the right places, but it, it feels so special in a way. It was so special, Olivia. And it, that comes up again and again and again. And, you know, the reason I have like some celebrity quotes that I would love to share. Um, and the reason why I chose celebrity quotes rather than somebody normal is because you figure that celebrities are have access to the best of the best, right? So they're going to the best nightclubs and the best shopping. So if they're talking about something being so extraordinary and so great, then you know it's probably one of a kind. And again, I think this is why studio ends up having this outsized impact on culture and why we think of it as like, oh, it was all during the 70s. And it's shocking to be like, wait a minute, it didn't even last three years. Oh my God. So this is a quote from Andre Leon Telly, who says it, about Studio 54, it was paradise lost, regained, lost and regained, lost and regained. There never have been, nor will there ever be a nightclub like it. The culture was totally diverse in the mix of delicious society froth to the underworld of glamazon drag queens to Hollywood and the arts and fashion world. Beauty was in every corner. It was a seamless mix of the most decadent and sexual frenzy of the 1970s. The whole world stopped by 54 after dinner. Some passed out. Some found paradise and lost it. Others found paradise and regained it over and over and over. Steve Rubell was unique in that he was the ringmaster to a world that blew up on the dance floor. One lived for this artificial paradise. And that is... Andre Leon Talley, who recently passed away, uh, a giant in fashion. Uh, he was at Vogue. Um, and then Rod Stewart, the rock star, he says, studio was a symphony of silk and satin. Or at any rate, I certainly was. Some women wore suits, some guys wore frocks, and the busboys wore hardly anything at all. But no matter the gladdest of glad rags you arrived in, and by dawn, everyone left in a fine coating of glitter. At least I think it was glitter. Um, and I'm going to give you also a quote. This from sounds Tommy. amazing. I know. I want to go. Like, I wish it existed. <laughs> Tommy Matola, who is the CEO of, I think it was Sony. He said, my memories are still as wildly vivid as I, if I had just walked in there last night. 54 was his own universe its own world with its own rules and its own government. And Ian and Steve were the judge and jury. You'd meet every powerful person from every single walk of life, be it politics, show business, industry, leaders, etc. You finally got into the main room and watched the mirror ball drop and the lights hit and the whole room would sparkle and there was nothing like it. And finally, when the crescent moon would drop down, then you knew you were in a magical place that would never exist again. And unfortunately, it hasn't. So um, that's a very astute observation that there's nothing like it. And so now you know why I'm so obsessed. And I always sort of think about it in kind of like these fantastical terms. Um, totally. And I mean, I'm joining I, your obsession now. Like yeah. I'm completely, I'm com you, you, you've hooked me. I'm completely on board with it now. And that's um, actually, I had a question for you. Do you yeah. think it's even possible for any thing like this to exist again? Like, am I going to ever get a shot to go to something Studio 54-esque? Or is it just, you know, a product of its time? I think it was a product of its time, but I'm also a really big believer in that there is always room for excellence. Mm -hmm. And I think that there is an opportunity, maybe not to replicate the same thing, because they have tried to do things that are similar. Um, and it just never has had the sort of panache and kind of the excitement and the anticipation that Studio did, right? Um, mm -hmm. And it's it's funny, um, Patty Hansen, who is the wife of Keith Richards from the Rolling Stones, she was a model uh, and and kind of like, a, uh, I don't know what you would call it today, in her own right, said the music, the beat, it was so fun. Most importantly, I met my husband there. It was the best time ever. Too bad people don't have a place like that anymore to shake out all of their built up anxieties and mm -hmm. get a fantastic release. And that is something that you hear over and over and over and over again. And I just wanted to share, I'm going to share Michael Jackson, uh, basically talking about, he's actually in Steve Rubell's office, talking about what he loves about studio. 
Is it fun to dance? It's fun to look at, you know, other people. You walk around and you see all kind of things. It's like a show. The whole thing, I mean, the props coming down and you see all the different fashions and people. It's really nice. It's where you come when you want to escape. It's, it's really escapism. That's what I try to make it be, too, is escapism. In other words, people who have, whatever hassles they have all day, they come here and they can forget about them. I think it's significant before you see a lot of really interesting people, really curious people, um, like Truman Capote and, and Andy would be there. And somehow or other, I think that the atmosphere was anonymous enough that they would, you know, feel comfortable there. And it was interesting enough sexually that they didn't feel like inhibited or, you know, they could they could relax. So that was a second clip. That was Debbie Harry from Blondie that was talking about also what, why she thought it was such a kind of great um, place and why people were so attracted to it. Um, but it was really this mix of all of these things, right? The music, the theatricality, the mix of people. And that's why Steve and his bouncers, he had a couple of famous ones. There was a guy called Mark Benicky who would stand out front and many people were very angry. And in fact, they basically, when Studio 54 was brought down, uh, there was a lot of pointing to angry people that kind of ratted on them because they weren't allowed in. Um, and so there was a lot of resentment, right? Which is really interesting because Studio 54 was responsible for bringing this entire outsider culture inside. And on the other hand, they had red velvet ropes, which was like, we're going to choose who we're bringing in. And when you hear Ian Schrager talk about it, he says, yeah, but it was never based on, could you afford it? Um, were you dressed properly? Because they used to turn away people all the time. Um, look straight through you. You could be sitting there for hours and they'd be like, just go home. And I think I played a clip of Steve Rebell actually telling somebody to go home um, at the very beginning. So they were very controlled about the melange that they had inside, right? Because they wanted to create this black magic in this safe, protected sanctuary. And there are really funny quotes of Steve Rebell going, it has to be bisexual, very, very bi, which I think he, it meant something different than what we think of today. He wanted to have, he would say, we don't want too many gays because if there are too many gays, it's going to be like this. If we have too many straights, it's going to get like this. So they wanted that perfect mix of folks that were going to kind of groove together for that one night and be able to release stress, hang out and have a phenomenal time. I mean, it seems like it's such a like tricky balance, like exactly what you were talking about, that it's, you know, about, you know, letting insiders in and yet it still, you know, was so exclusive in some ways, but meant to be inclusive in other ways. Like maybe I'm just sort of thinking out loud here, like, I don't, maybe that, maybe that's not sustainable, you know, like maybe the magic is, maybe that's why it didn't last as long as it did. Like maybe that could only have lasted for, for so long before, you know, you, you can't keep doing it anymore. I don't know. I'm sure, I'm sure you'll get to sort of the, the decline of uh, Studio 54, but I'm, I'm sort of sitting here being like, that's a really tough balance to strike. And that's a very astute observation. And you're exactly right. Um, you know, I think it's very hard to maintain that. And I think part of the reason it's so legendary, it's like the same thing when you think about, you know, there's that whole cadre of rock stars that died before the age of 30. Mm -hmm. And they've become idols in our mind, right? And that also includes actresses and, you know, people like Marilyn Monroe or Kurt Cobain. And, and they die young. Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, their legend starts to loom huge. Um, and I think that's also part of the reason that Studio 54 has this outsized. I mean, it went down at its height. 
Um, and when it ended up closing, they had a goodbye party. Um, and Diana Ross and Liza Minnelli showed up and serenaded the owners. It was a huge party. Um, and, you know, it, it, it was just they like did it in style when it closed down. Um, so I think that, you know, that whole idea, it's a it's a very delicate balance because it's I mean, when you hear sort of interviews of Ian Schrager, he himself says, I, I don't. I can't tell you, and he talks about this in, you know, as we all know, he's gone on to create these amazing hotels and living spaces. He says, you, he says, I can't exactly tell you what it is. I know when I see it, but it's kind of this, whatever is going to make it work in that moment. Um, and I think that's, that sort of speaks to the artistry that was involved, right? It's not just opening up a club. These guys brought a certain special something to it. Um, and, you know, so when you hear about like on a New Year's Eve party, there was so much glitter. There was like a ton of glitter. They used the, um, uh, the designer, Robert Isabel, who was actually, he also had a great perfume and, uh, sadly passed away, uh, some years ago. Um, he was responsible for dumping all that glitter on New Year's Eve. And people would say, oh my God, for months, I was finding glitter in my clothes, in my hair. I mean, it was just so iconic, right, that they created this. So it's really an extraordinary kind of space and time. Um, and again, all of this was done before social media, throwing caution to the wind. Um, and, you know, I just wanted to share, you know, we talked about how the celebrity culture was important sort of in a different way uh, than it is now. But Celebrities also got turned away, and there are these great stories. Um, uh, I think it was Nile Rogers from Chic that said he saw Cher get turned away one evening. Um, she was waiting outside, and I think that probably didn't happen as time went on, but I, I don't, he doesn't know why, but he said she was out there waiting. Um, and there's another great story that the uh the doorman said this 70s looking guy walked up with like chains and like the long kind of shag winged back hair, um, bell bottoms and was standing at the velvet rope for all of this time. And Steve Rebell came out and said, who's that guy? And he said, I don't know, some B&T, some bridge and tunnel dude, right? We're not letting him in. And Steve Rebell goes, I think that that guy looks like the Bee Gees. He goes, hold on a second. And he walks over and asks the guy, are you part of the Bee Gees? And it turns out to be Barry Gibb. And they were like, oh my God, please come in. Um, but he was waiting outside for 30 minutes, right? Um, I think one of the more famous stories is how Nile Rogers, Grace Jones was a fixture at Studio 54. And Nile Rogers, who is pretty famous in his own right today, was part of a group called Chic. And uh, there was that famous song, La Freak. Um, that song was created because Grace Jones had invited Chic, who was kind of a big sort of disco uh, band then, to come to Studio 54, say that they were on the guest list. So they showed up, but the bouncer did not have their names. And they kept saying, no, we're actually Grace Jones' personal guests, but they didn't get in. And they were so pissed off that they went around the corner to 52nd Street, where I think Niall lived, and they wrote a song basically, which was uh, F.U. It ended up turning into Le Freak, Freak Out. They substitute, obviously, Freak for F.U., but it was sort of to express their displeasure at not being able to get into studio. So it's like even people who weren't in it, like it's still sparking these crazy, amazing, artistic, theatrical endeavors. It's so funny. Totally, totally. Um, and so you... you had this wonderland where everything converged, you know, it was just a wonderful place where you could just be yourself, relax, get away from your trouble from 10 p.m. to 4 a.m., party with lots of different people. And what ended up happening is, you know, I think it, a lot of resentment built up because there were people that were, you know, waiting outside for hours that would go home, powerful people. They would say that Steve Rebell was rude. He would look right through you. The bouncers didn't care. And so they felt that some of those hurt feelings translated into people actually not wanting them to succeed. And um, these sort of kind of the impetus for that, the match that sort of lit that um, kindling 
was basically when Steve Rebell came out and made some comment about, oh, we make so much money doing this. Only the mafia makes more money. And of course, as soon as he said that, the IRS immediately were on top of that. Um, and there's a really funny, actually, clip of the um, an IRS man who, when they ended up coming to arrest these guys, talking on film about, he goes, you know, when I had these guys in custody, I asked Steve Rebell, he said, would you let me into Studio 54 if I came in? And Steve looks at him and he goes, no way, you would never have any chance. And he goes, I was shocked that these guys would say this to me while they were in custody. Um, yeah, I feel like that's not the response. <laughs> not the time for that. He was like, no, you'd never get in. But the, they, they, they talk about how these guys ended up becoming arrogant, right? Because everybody wanted to get into Studio 54. And there were songs written about it. Get me into Studio 54. How do I get into Studio 54? Um, and so the end came when sort of the feds... Oh, the other thing I should mention is they did something very risky, which they didn't have a proper liquor license, which sounds crazy, right? They oh. ended up... Yeah. yeah, it seems like a bad move. <laughs> yeah, they ended up getting a catering license, which means they could get liquor every every day. They had to get a new license. And one day they forgot and they were raided and shut down. Um, and there was a period where they were serving fruit. Somebody was like, only Studio 54 could get away with serving that, you know, on, on a particular night. But they had become so sort of confident in their ability uh, to create these spaces that were attracting so many interesting creative people that the kind of um, sort of general uh, general consensus is they, that they got too big for their britches. And Steve Rebell was considered somebody that was a little bit of a loud mouth, you know, going out and bragging that they made way more money than the mafia got the IRS involved. Um, there was a raid. They hired sort of the famous Roy Cohen, who was this uh, absolutely kind of pit bull type of lawyer. Um, I mean, you can Google him. There's lots of information about him. That They are not even by far the most um, famous clients. He was also Donald Trump's lawyer. People say that Donald Trump learned everything from him, but just an absolute in your face. I'm not going to back down. You know, we're going to see you that kind of, you know, kind of rough, uh, sort of persona. Um, and so when they were, um, raided, Roy Cohn was sort of trotted out and he said, what do you mean? They make a lot of money. They pay a lot of taxes, but these guys ended up getting arrested eventually uh, and given three year jail terms because it was found that they had a couple of sets of books. They had skimmed money. They paid 8K in taxes on about $6 million of revenue. Uh, so apparently they were skimming um, there was tons of cash. People would say that they would go to Steve Rebell's house and find like loads of cash in his closet. He kept cash. He wore this great Norma Kamali jacket. She was also at Studio 54 a lot, the designer. Um, and he would keep cash and drugs and things in this giant jacket to hand out as favors to people. And um, when um, you know they were arrested, they found all this stuff. They found a second set of books up in the fake ceiling. They found, um, you know, they found every reason to actually go after these guys. And, you know, to be perfectly kind of candid, they absolutely did things that they weren't supposed to do. And I think it was a function of, you know, everything getting to them. But they ended up being, uh, you know, arrested. The, sh the club was shut down for a period. Um, it actually ran while they were still in jail. Uh, they had people that were actually running it while they were in jail, but they got taken away. I, honestly, I'm sure the popularity, Scott, like just for the controversy, like they're in jail. I feel like that makes it even more exciting, like of a place to be like you would like, think all the hot so. Spot. Yeah, you would think so. But it kind of ended up going in the opposite direction, right? Really? Because they were kind of the magic. And um, mm -hmm. I think they were they felt inv invincible. Um, and so when they got jailed, they ended up just doing a, a bit about 18 months and they came out very subdued, right? Very, very subdued. Um, and I think 18 months never, in prison, I guess would do that. To a they, person. They, yeah. They talk about how it was the toughest time of their life. 
Um, and uh, by the way, they were taking business meetings in jail. I think they ended up selling studio while they were in jail. Uh, mm. Ian Strager often says it was so embarrassing. He goes, my, I think some of his children don't even know yet. Um, but, uh, and, uh, you know, they just, in, in some ways, they didn't recover. But I, I started the show up by saying this is also a story of redemption. Um, and the redemption is, first of all, that friendship lasted intact, which literally brings tears to my eyes when I think about these two, because friendship is so important to me. And, you know, your friends are the family that you aren't related to. And loyalty is very important to me. And anytime I read or see anything about these two, it brings tears to my eyes because they were just opposite ends of the spectrum, but they had each other's backs. Something like jail could tear that apart, right? Because they'll get you and try to get you to rat on the other one. And they came out the other side partnered, you know, having lost everything, partnered with each other and started a new life and kind of totally redeemed themselves um, when they actually had um, kind of everybody against them. And this is the second time they've done it because when they opened up Studio 54, uh, they had um, folks that were running kind of the big gay clubs at the time telling people, don't go to studio, you know, it's like, it's not going to be anything, blah, blah, blah. So now they've got the stigma of having been in jail, um, of having, you know, uh, skimmed money, having been dishonest. And even though probably everybody was doing something like that, now they've got that stigma attached to them. Um, and so they get out of jail um, and they end up going into the hotel business um, and opening up the Morgans and uh, a bunch of other hotels, which are today sort of popular places to go uh, in New York, the Morgans, um, the Hudson Hotel, Ian Schrager opened, the public is the latest, um, and there are a bunch of others, uh, which I'm sure you've either been to or... Yeah, I was about to say, I think I've stayed at the Hudson Hotel, actually. Yep. Very fun vibes. Very the fun Royalton, vibes. the Royalton, and the idea really was that they were going to create a sort of lobby socializing where ordinary mm. people like me and you could go and have like a luxury time in a hotel lobby and create kind of, you know, a new sort of way of, of kind of letting loose in the very chic hotel lobby um, of a place where people came to stay when they were from out of town. So they sort of pioneered that. Um, they also did open up another club called the Palladium. Uh, it was famous because Madonna used to actually spin there and sing there in 1985. I think it was on 14th Street. It's actually an NYU dorm today. I always oh, wow. joke that the students don't know that there was a very famous nightclub, but it never got to the height of Studio 54. Um, it was always just like a regular club, like the World or the Limelight. All great and interesting clubs for their time, but it didn't have the mystique and the panache um, mm. and kind of the night magic that studio did. Um, I wonder too, I'm thinking, I, I'm, I'm realizing that the space where Studio 54 was, the Roundabout Theater Company is yep. in there now. And yep. actually I went to a uh, performance of Cabaret there with my mom a few, I don't know, <laughs> probably almost 10 years back now. And it was one of the, it, one of the best performances I've ever seen in my life. And I, and, you know, definitely it was partially the cast, you know, Alan Cumming was in it. Emma Stone was um, Sally Bowles when I went, which was awesome, but also just the space. Like we sat down at the tables and, and, and you, you, there was something, I mean, this is going to sound silly, but there was something sort of in the air in the theater where it, just, really? it was this whole, yeah, it was this whole, and I didn't realize you know, until literally just now, like hearing about this, there was something that just felt, energetic and vibrant in the space there so I mean I I would feel like that's sort of a legacy of Studio 54 too and maybe that's a product of me just becoming an, my own fangirl now of Studio 54 you've you've converted me but like it, it it's interesting there is something about that space like still to this day that's so special you know you're not the only one that said that I found a clip of somebody um that went in and um, you know, who did a little documentary, like kind of a homemade documentary. It wasn't like mm -hmm. a little one. I think he had like a, a, a high eight camera or something. And he said, he said, you can feel it's like breathing the space. Yeah. Um, and I read an interview um, with Ian Schrager where he took his daughters, who I think are like college A's in and said, 
hey, do you guys think, and of course it's a theater now, would you guys be interested in partying here? And they were like, yeah, this yeah. is a this space, you know? So, um, yeah. It's I, a I great never... space. I've been, like, I've been to a ton of Broadway shows. Like, I'm lucky in that way, and I love going. But I remember, and my mom can say the same thing, too. Like, that show was incredible. And that space and that just, that whole evening. Like, it, it makes it an event, just, like, walking in there. And you know what's interesting now that I think of it, I was about to say I've never been in this space, but I don't think that's true because they sold it. It was run as Studio 54 for a while, but then it became the new Ritz. Um, and I was really into punk rock. And I think I might have gone to see a show, but I never made the connection. And I probably wasn't as obsessed as I am now about mm -hmm. that. So I probably didn't care. I probably was like, oh yeah, the old Studio 54. Um but you I gotta go this, back now. now I gotta go got back now. <laughs> yeah, it's like it's. I am sure. I believe in the energy of things, and yeah. you know, Steve Rubell and Ian Schrager say this again and again. They were like the energy. It was the energy. It was the night magic. It was the coming together of all of these things. And and you know, Ian Schrager is known for this exquisite attention to detail with all of his hotels to create these atmospheres, and that's what he brought to Studio 54. You can see that, you know, they're agonizing over the lights. The lights would come down from the ceiling. There were these columns of lights that were like flashing. And he would talk about how they agonized over that. But then they were thinking about getting rid of them because people were climbing all over them. And he was like, then he had like, you know, his, his maintenance guy saying, you know, there are people that are climbing on these lights and stuff and they're dangerous. And so he was like, all right, we need to think about it. And he's like, of course I go home and then I come back and the next day and I hear that Steve was the one that was jumping on the lights the night before, <laughs> you know, because Steve was partying with everybody mm -hmm. in the club and Ian would always be in the upstairs office. So that was actually the interesting kind of, they were so different and they were such good friends. And it actually really brings tears to my eyes when Ian Schrager says, I will never have another friend like that. You know, I just think, my God, to have that kind of friendship. Um, you know, this sort of the the kind of conclusion to the whole that the way that things ended was, you know, after the club ended up shutting down and going through all of these different um, iterations of, you know, never achieved that same kind of uh, notoriety that it did in the height of when they were actually there, you know, these two went on to start all these different hotels um, and kind of living spaces. And then Steve Rubell passed away a few years later. Um, mm. And it was funny. Somebody was saying that at his funeral, they had a little red velvet robe. <laughs> <laughs> There's no way he'd rather go out. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and it was so funny. The bouncer that was telling the story was crying. He had tears in his eyes. He goes, he goes, it was just somebody put a little red velvet wrote at his funeral. But it was just, you know, a time when it was just a different time. You know, you couldn't get away with that today with social media. I mean, mm -hmm. a big part of it is I played that Debbie Harry quote and Michael Jackson. It was an escape. You know, there was no cell phones people wouldn't come up to you and go do you want to dance no one would bother you if you were halston on the dance floor no one would bother you if you're brooke shields i mean right now people would get up in your face with a camera and take yeah. a picture of you dancing right yeah um i mean we live in a culture where somebody's in a car accident and people stop and don't help the people in the accident they're taking pictures of them mm -hmm. nobody's calling 911, and it's gone to that right but this was it was voyeuristic, but in a very controlled way, voyeuristic. And they would see it on the front page of like the New York Post or whatever, you know, whatever newspaper, New York Daily News. Um, it wasn't that people were going to get into your space and invade it. And, you know, these stars would be sitting on their banquettes, smoking, hanging out, you know, Elizabeth Taylor eating a cake with her face on it. These iconic images, Dolly Parton, they turned it into a, like a barnyard when they had a party for Dolly Parton. Halston had a party <laughs> there, you know. And so Ian Schrager was building these incredibly intricate like sets and theatrical, you know, that were moving during the night. I that stuff doesn't happen today, right? Yeah. So it was a certain time in history that I think will never be captured again. Yeah. Um, but it has been an inspiration for so many things. Um, you know, I think about disco and the seventies. I mean, I often think if I have, you know, I want to party, I love disco music. I love dance music. Um, you know, 
having that theme is something that I, that's the first thing I always think of when I think about having a party. It's the Studio 54 theme. Studio 54, late 1970s. Yeah. Someone, someone needs to do a movie about all of this. Although I don't know, like same sort of thing. I don't know if a movie could, if we did a movie nowadays, like if it could truly capture everything, it's gotta be the right people on that project making the movie. So there are a couple of movies. There is a sort of um, fictional movie called 54, mm-hmm. which I've never seen. I'm not that interested. Um, but there are some documentaries. There is a great VH1 behind the music that you can find online. There are a couple of other documentaries that take you inside. There's also a movie which you can get on Amazon Prime. It's called Studio 54. Um, and the nice thing about that movie is Ian Schrager is actually involved in that. Oh, cool. um, oh and I should also mention, you know, they went to jail. It was really embarrassing for both of them. Um, and you can see actually the difference between Steve Rubell, sort of flamboyant and out there like before and mm-hmm. after. You know, mm-hmm. he's subdued. He's definitely subdued um, after the jail. But um, the, in the Ian, you know, Ian Schrager in, well, he's helping narrate, I think, parts of the Studio 54 documentary. Um, you know, he just talks about kind of the magic that they created. And he goes, oh, you know, sort of the, all the other aspects of it were sort of overblown and that's crazy. But he's sort of the only one that says that. Everybody else that talks about studio is like, oh my God, it was crazy. <laughs> um, and you know what's extraordinary, Olivia, is I was just thinking that no violence. Nobody was, was going to fight. Yeah. Was there, like, the, I feel like the only controversy, I mean, besides, you know, the, the IRS coming, was just people not getting in. Like, was there, you know, was there any other bad stuff, like nope. other controversy stuff happening there? Nobody. They would say that people would show up, like sometimes on drugs, quaaludes, coke, whatever. Stars, there were, but there were uh, bus boys and, and uh, doormen that were like stars would show But nobody created a ruckus. People were well-behaved inside. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, well-behaved, the people making out in every corner. I mean, think about like, people go to Burning Man for this, right? And they yeah. go, oh, Burning Man is so well- uh, to me, I'm like, yeah, you don't need to go out to the desert. You just need to transport yourself back to 1977, yeah. 54. It's a lot less messy and probably a lot less expensive. It was like $15. Wow. Um, the uh, other way, well, $15 in 1977 money is probably like, oh, that's a true. ridiculous amount tonight. Do the calculation. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it's also, the other thing is um, they created it like a womb-like experience, right? So you're out on the street. There's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people. You'll see all of these pictures of like heads of people waiting in the freezing cold, like dressed up socialites and investment bankers and nobodies and people that had flown in from other countries that couldn't get in. And so when you do get in, the doors were blacked out, so you couldn't see in. And when you do get in, you go in, there's this very rarefied experience of like going through like the womb and then it opens up into sort of the disco with all of these different levels and banquettes of people sitting. And there's this one like sort of gold, golden bar and lights. And it's just, I mean, you think about it and you're like, oh my God, if I could only be there once in my life oh, um, someone needs to invent time travel because i i gotta go we gotta go together it's 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 an amazing an amazing thing so that is sort of you know the magic that was studio 54 and again i, th- I think of it often as a very textured multi-dimensional story it's not just about kind of the things that people want to talk about which is like oh the drugs and the sex i actually don't even think about that piece of it i love dancing and i love music mm-hmm. I think about dancing and looking over and seeing gorgeous Halston and continuing to dance. And all of a sudden you're booging with Diana Ross, you know, or you look up and you see little Drew Barrymore. (laughs) 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 And you're just, and the night is young, you know, it's 2 a.m. and you're dancing and let's get another drink. And you're wearing something fabulous and, everybody's beautiful and oh mo there's a couple making out okay i'm just gonna make wide birth i mean (laughs) the whole idea was non-judgmental safe sanctuary protected yeah Um, 
which you couldn't get today. Um, by the way, I will say, I don't know if you've heard of Bergain, um, the nightclub in Berlin. Oh, okay. I actually, I was thinking about this. So I've never been, but my best friend from high school went abroad there and was like so close to getting it. This is like the like club. Where it's like kind of <laughs> yes, impossible to get exactly. into. Yeah. She was, she was like so close to getting in. And then like one of the girls in her group, I don't know. I, I don't know if she was ill for, you know, insert reason here. Um, but she didn't get it. And it's like still, you know, one of those things that will haunt her forever. Um, but it, it made me think about, you know, as, as you're sort of talking about sort of like a crapshoot of who gets in and who does it. That makes that made me think immediately of that of that story of that club in Berlin. Yeah. Have you been? It's, yeah, it's I have. I have. But have I didn't go. I went this summer, actually. Um, my partner at the time um it happens to be from that area. And so Mm -hmm. he's Austrian. And so we actually ended up going for his birthday, but it was during COVID. So the club was actually closed down. And what it was, was a huge art exhibition. So I got to go see the space. Um, They take away your phones. You can't have any phones inside. Um, But it's very industrial. It's a very different feel because it's EDM. Mm, And it was in an old lighting factory in East Berlin. So you literally, it's, it's completely different. It's concrete. Um, it's, it's, I would say, I mean, there's a mix, but it's actually, I would characterize it as being way more gay, um, Mm -hmm. and way more kind of focused on sex because anything that you read about Bergain is like, Oh, all this crazy stuff happens there. And to me, I don't think of studio 54 that way. I think about it as, I think they're both probably equal on the music. Like this is EDM and and my partner at the time had gone when it was a nightclub and when it was open as a nightclub. And he says, oh, you lose yourself in the music there. It's extraordinary. He goes, it is, the sound system is the best in the world. He's like, you literally just are floating. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you're a man, you're going to get super hit on everywhere that you go. The bathrooms are not safe. You know, there's all sorts of activity happening. But I think that's a very different kind of feeling to what Studio 54 was, which was this melange. It was a mix. It was also color. It was fashion. It wasn't, I think of Bergain is much more edgy. Um, and I don't think of Studio 54 that way. Yeah. Yeah. You know, interesting. I, I think of it more as 70s influenced, more, I don't want to say artsy, but creative, um, imagination, less yeah, threatening. Yeah, like theatrical. Yeah, less threatening in a way. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you walk into Bergain and everything's very industrial. It's concrete. Um, there, you know, it's like black tape, concrete, steel, yeah. you know, like, um, you know, sharded, like shards of glass. Um, and so it's a really interesting space. I did like take a look at everything really hard and I was like, wow, like huge windows. And at the time we went, it was right when, I think it was like last July, we looked out the window and there was a big party going on next to our outdoor party because the COVID restrictions had just been lifted. Mm-hmm. You still had to wear a mask throughout the club and stuff. But, um, I can imagine like you can get lost in there um, yeah. and that's what ends up happening. Um, you can't, you know, you don't hear, you can't hear yourself talking. It's difficult to find other people, et cetera, et cetera. So that's yeah, the I only, think, yeah. I think I, I wouldn't do as well in, in Bergate. Like, it's just not between like the EDM and sort of like the dark industrial, like I, you know, I, I would love to be able to like tell the story that, you know, oh, I went and got in and saw yeah. it and everything. But I think if I actually like walked in and got in there, it would would not would not be my vibe as much like I'm just like you know give me give me some fun pop music or rock music to dance to and 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 I'm good to go (laughs) yeah it's definitely I think a bit edgier a bit uh I I would say a little bit more threatening a little darker Mm -hmm. yeah it is definitely pointed towards a particular subculture whereas when you think about Studio 54 I think it is people the words that people that frequented it kept bringing up, Olivia, were safe, sanctuary, yeah. protected, haven. 
I can do whatever I want. But also, again, think about this is the 70s. And it was a really sort of unique time. You know, I'd mentioned that this was after birth control. It was before AIDS was a thing. Uh, it was before people understood that cocaine is actually an addictive drug. It's not really good mm-hmm. for you. It's like, shouldn't do yeah, that. <laughs> probably shouldn't do that. But, it, you know, people just thought, oh, I can just stay up all night if I do this. And so... I think it was in some ways a little bit more of an innocent time. Mm. Um, the music, you, you can hear the words, you can dance to it. You're wearing yeah. something colorful. Yeah. You know, Brigade, they joke to get by the bouncer, you have to be wearing black. Yeah. Very German, you know. Yeah. So, but it was an extraordinary time. And uh, I think it still looms super large in people's heads. And that's why it has even though it had this very short lifespan, um, it has kind of like an oversized influence on the way that we think about the 1970s and the early 80s. Um, And, you know, also I hope that people take away that there are also these other little sub beautiful sub stories, you know, about friendship and redemption and uh, just people being happy and lost at a time when, New York was, you know, like I said, on the verge of bankruptcy. You'd walk outside and it was a bit of a war zone, you Mm -hmm. know, you'd go inside. It was totally different. So, um, really extraordinary time. And, uh, I am sorry that my parents did not take me there when I was five years old. So (laughs) I still blame them. I think you need to call them and be like, the wounds reopened. Like I'm mad all over again. <laughs> yeah, they don't. They were, it was a tank. There was a King Tut exhibition happening at that time. And I do remember they went to New York during that time as a little mm-hmm. kid. Cause I was really excited about Egyptology and um, um, they had just King Tut had gone, um, you know, the uh, uh, sarcoph- uh, sarcophagus Sarcoph- yeah. and the mummies yeah. were actually on tour and in the United States, my parents had gotten tickets and my mother says she doesn't remember it, but they had actually left us and gone to New York. But this was all the same time. So I often think, oh my God, my parents are breathing the same air. Same air. <laughs> yep. So that is the story of Studio 54. Oh, I feel like I just like went down a rabbit hole. Like I thank you so much for sharing all of that. I'm about to go, you know, probably get lost in Wikipedia pages and and look at some of these interviews. But this was absolutely amazing to hear. Thank you so much for this. Such an exciting time. Um, I will have a Studio 54 party and invite everybody. Actually, every party I have will be Studio 54 um, theme. But uh yeah, just a happy, joyous time. And yeah. I think it gives us something to think about um, and inspire us. So this was a wonderful episode. I hope that people will enjoy learning a little bit about Studio 54. And I would just encourage everybody to just dance it out. Yes. Yeah.